Section 14 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Quentin Jasper. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 33. The Biology of the Seasons, Part 1. The Rhythm of Life. Men and animals depend on green plants and these depend on the sun. But according to the Earth's seasonal relation to the sun, we get varying amounts of heat and light. Thus the ratio of heat supply in summer to that in winter is as 63 to 37. To the varying income of heat and light, living creatures have had to adjust themselves, except in haunts like the deep sea, where there are practically no seasons. So the biology of the seasons has, for its central task, an inquiry into the ways in which the life of plants and animals is adapted to the external periodicities of spring and summer, autumn and winter. But the problem is complicated by the fact that, within living creatures themselves, there are constitutional rhythms or periodicities. Everyone knows that after hard work, he must rest and sleep and feed. A great expenditure of energy must be followed by a period of income. The essential process of life, summed up in the word metabolism, consists of constructive, upbuilding, winding-up chemical activities, anabolism, and of disruptive, downbreaking, running-down chemical activities, catabolism, and there must be an alternation, or seesaw, between the two. Vital activity implies a twofold process of waste and repair, discharge and restitution, activity and recuperation. Now the one predominates, and again the other. Now there is storing, and again there is work. Now there is growing, and again there is reproduction. As it is said in Ecclesiastes 3, To everything a season, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. There can be no doubt that deep-sea animals, living in monotonous uniformity, eternal light and eternal winter, have their internal rhythms, their seesaw between work and rest, their alternation of reproducing and vegetating. All living creatures are inherently predisposed to be rhythmic. Their operations are regularly discontinuous. But the point is that the internal oscillations have become adjusted to the external periodicities. We should have to sleep though there were no night, as in the far north in summer. But we sleep better because of the night, which shuts off from our nervous system many of the messengers that are always rattling the knocker during the day. The central idea is that life is rhythmic, and that it is punctuated by the seasons and by other external periodicities, such as the tides. Ripple Marks of Growth Everyone has looked with pleasure at the well-sawn stem of a big tree, and counted the rings which register its age. We pause to think for a moment of one of the big trees, or sequoias of California, which showed 2,425 rings, and had therefore begun its existence 525 years before the Christian era, but how is it possible to distinguish the annual increments of growth? Why do not the rings of wood simply coalesce? The reason is that the structure of the wood developed in summer is very different from that developed in autumn, and the alternation makes the lines of growth stand out clearly. In the same way, we can read summer and winter in the concentric lines on the scales of a salmon and many other fish, and this can be corroborated by making a section of the otoliths, or ear stones. All through organic nature, there are what may be called the ripple marks of growth, the parallel lines on the scallop shell, on the tortoise's scale, the rings on the rattlesnake's rattle, and the zones within the spine of the sea urchin. 
there is a widespread self-registering of periodicities and pauses. The correlation between internal rhythms and external periodicities is sometimes very direct. Since photosynthesis depends on the sunlight, green plants must be intensely active during the day and relatively restful at night. Similarly, many plant cells such as simple algae feed during the day and divide at night. In other cases, the correlation is more indirect and more subtle. Thus it is with striking regularity in October and November, when the moon is in her last quarter and the day before, that swarms of palolo worms occur in the coral reefs of Samoa. Myriads of these worms crawl out, tail foremost, from the crevices they inhabit, and agitate themselves so violently that while the head end remains in the rock, the posterior ends drop off and make the water like vermicelli soup. These headless worm bodies are laden with egg cells and sperm cells, and these are shed in countless millions in the water, so that fertilization is quite secure. The swarming begins shortly before sunrise, and is mostly over in half an hour. There is much that is very interesting in this Palolo story. The swarming takes place so punctually that the natives are prepared for it, distinguishing the smaller October swarm from the larger one in November. The worms are eaten either alive or baked, and are esteemed a great delicacy. The land crabs also come down to the beach to get their share of the abundant jetsam. There is some subtle stimulus connected with the moonlight and the sunrise. There is also the very profuse sowing of the seed. But perhaps the most extraordinary thing is the evasion of the death penalty, which reproduction often involves to animals. For the heads of the palola worms remain in the fissures of the coral reefs and grow new bodies at their leisure. In some cases, the external periodicity takes so strong a grip of the constitution that the animal exhibits the correlated change even when the stimulus is not operative. This is well illustrated by the little green planarian worm, Convoluta, which is common on the flat sandy beach of some parts of Brittany. When the tide is out, the worms come up in crowds and form green patches on the sand. When the tide returns, just as the first wave reaches them, they retire into shelter. But Bond has demonstrated that in a quiet aquarium, away from all tidal influence, the worms exhibit for some time the normal rhythms ascending and descending, keeping time with the tides. The external periodicity has gripped their constitution for a time. 1. The biology of spring. Spring is a time of renaissance, when a fresh start is made after a period of rest. The seeds have been lying dormant in the earth. Processes of fermentation have been going on within. Preparing the compact legacy of stored food, bacteria begin to work at the bursting envelopes. Moisture seeps in, the seedlings emerge and exhibit delicate movements in shoot and root. See the article on botany. The buds which have rested through the winter, well wrapped up in tough bud scales, begin to burst. That is to say, the warmth of the spring sunshine has activated the living matter. The cells are dividing into intricate orderliness. The watery sap is ascending from the roots, or, it may be, from places where it has been stored within the stem. Like the seeds, the buds were formed in the abundance of the previous summer. Like the seeds, the buds are adapted to contain much within a small and well-protected surface. The young leaves and the leaf buds are often twisted in a close spiral, and when the shoot grows, they show the same spiral loosened and drawn out. In the one case, the spiral means close packing. In the other case, it obviates too much overlapping of leaf by leaf. In the flower buds, the parts of the flower are all lying in miniature and when the spring comes with a rush, the flowers are ready. Brehm speaks of the sudden transformation on the Asiatic steppes. From the apparently sterile earth, herbaceous and bulbous growths shoot up. Buds are unpacked, flowers unfold, and the steppe arrays itself in indescribable splendor. Boundless tracks are gorgeous with tulips, yellow, dark red, 
white, white and red. It is true that they rise singingly in twos and threes, but they are spread over the whole stepland. The sudden reappearance of flowers, so that the desert quickly becomes a garden, is more intelligible when it is clearly understood that the flower buds were made in the previous summer sunshine, and that there are stores of nutrition within the plant, especially when there is anything like a bulb or a corm or a rootstock, as there is so often in the flowers of the spring. Many of the early flowers are somewhat primitive, as we may see in the willow catkins. Many tend to be bud-like, as if some slight check had occurred in the opening of the blossom and perhaps we should expect something of the primitive and the bud-like in the first flowers of the year. We have just spoken of the resplendent tulips of the steppes, and everyone is familiar with the fine blue of such early flowers as hyacinth and iris, but on the whole, the spring flowers tend to be light in color. For example, white and yellow, like snowdrop and celandine. This probably means that in the scantier sunshine, the average spring flower has not the intensity of vital processes that sets in later in the year, when the colors certainly deepen. It may also be associated with the fact that not a few of the spring flowers are wind-pollinated, and that variations in the direction of bright color are not so likely to take grip in flowers that blossom at a time when insects are not much in evidence. Animals reawaken. There is a spring reawakening, or renaissance, among animals as well as among plants. One of the most familiar sights is the queen humblebee making for the willow catkins to refresh herself after a winter's fast, and to collect pollen and nectar for provisioning the cradles which she will soon fashion in her nest in the mossy bank. She has been resting in a sort of lethargy all through the winter, one of the few survivors, perhaps the only survivor, of last year's large family. Of the scores, or even hundreds, that then crowded the nest, only the young queens survive. Many insects pass the winter, not in the adult state but as cocoons or pupae. In sheltered recesses, they have lain like mummies, well protected by enswathing wrappings. They entered into their quiescent state as larvae, for example, caterpillars. They underwent at least a part of their great change, or metamorphosis, into a new style of bodily architecture. They reawaken in spring as winged adults, such as butterflies. Similarly, there is a reawakening of the snails, which have been lying sealed up in their shells at the heart of an old wall and of the frogs, which have been dormant in a snug hole of the bank near the pond. Mouth shut, nose shut, eyes shut. Breathing through their skins, and with their hearts beating feebly, the vigor of the males croaking, and the rapidity with which the females proceed to deposit masses of spawn in the pool, cannot be said to suggest any impairment of energies through the winter months. Then there is the interesting reawakening of winter sleepers, such as hedgehog and dormouse, marmot and bat. Spring is emphatically a time for young things, of seedlings, buds, and young blossoms, of tadpoles, nestlings, and young lambs. There is a striking multiplication of minute organisms in the waters of pond and lake, of estuary and sea. It is interesting to find in freshwater basins that there is often, as the result of the dying away of plants in autumn and winter, a production of chemical substances called auxetics, which later on promote the multiplication of cells, and, towards the spring, an increasing quantity of certain other substances called augmenters which give more power to the elbow of the first. Thus, out of death, come the stimulants of the awakening of pond life and lake life in spring. A single infusorian may be the ancestor of a million by the end of a week, or more if the spring is genial. As we have noted in another article, the water fleas eat the infusorians, and fishes eat the water fleas, and so the world goes round and on. One of the interests of spring is the repeopling of the fresh waters which seems so empty through the winter. The female gnat, or mosquito, spends the winter in hiding, and makes in spring a floating raft of two or three hundred somewhat cigar-shaped eggs. 
From these there emerge larvae, which hang head downwards from the surface film, or sink to the bottom of the pool and jerk themselves up again by vigorous strokes of their tail. They feed and grow and molt, and eventually turn into pupae of very different appearance, which rest head upwards at the surface and do not eat at all. In three or four days, the husk of the pupa splits, and a winged gnat emerges, not without risk and difficulty. Many biological notes are struck. There are the adaptations of the gnat larvae to living in the water, and yet breathing dry air. There is the accumulation of reserves for a very vigorous short aerial life, mainly devoted to reproduction. There is the prolific multiplication and the prodigious infantile mortality, and in spite of the latter, there are clouds of survivors, fine food for some of the migrant birds returning to the north. And there is the interlinking with human life, for the mosquito which carries the malaria organism and infects man with it is just a species of gnat. The pouring of a little paraffin on the pool makes a surface film which the mosquito larvae cannot grip, and so it is drowned, with consequent reduction of malaria. Then there are the small fishes that devour the mosquito larvae. Wheels within wheels. The gnat's life history occupies about a month, and there is a succession of generations through the summer. When this is contrasted with the long life of the mayfly, which may be subaquatic for three or four years, though aerial for only two or three days, or it may be only one, there emerges another biological idea, that a portion of the life history may be long drawn out in one type and telescoped down in another, all in adaptation to different conditions of life. When we turn to the familiar development of the frog, which occupies about three months, we find a clear illustration of another biological idea, that of recapitulation. The individual tends to climb up its own genealogical tree. When it wriggles out from the protective sphere of jelly, the newly hatched larva is little more than a very primitive vertebrae, limbless and gillless, with eyes which have not yet reached the surface on their outgrowing from the brain. When it is about one month old, the tadpole has a two-chambered heart, just as fishes have, and a very fish-like circulation. It is true that its gills are not like those of ordinary fishes, being ectodermic in origin, but they have their counterparts in the external gills of some old-fashioned fishes, like the African dipnoan, Protopterus. When it is about two months old and has got its limbs free, the tadpole begins to breathe with lungs as well as gills, just like the mudfishes or dipnoi. The individual development recapitulates in abbreviated form the evolution of the race, and yet from the very first, the larval frog is an amphibian, not a fish. There is, for instance, no suggestion of scales. Some of the butterflies and moths that have wintered as adults emerge and pair in the spring, and thus arise the early caterpillars, which are often a source of considerable anxiety to the gardener. The contrast between the worm-like caterpillar and the winged butterfly is very striking, had we not become familiarized. A worm-like body, mouth parts suited for biting, very diminutive antennae, simple eyes, three pairs of jointed clawed legs, and five pairs of unjointed unclawed posterior appendages, everything as different as possible from the butterfly. The crawling caterpillar is a voracious eater. The flying butterfly sips nectar daintily or sometimes fasts altogether. It is an antithesis the antithesis between a nutritive and a reproductive phase. The stores of nutritive material accumulated by the caterpillar make the butterfly possible. There can be little doubt that changes involved in the evolution of climates made it profitable for the higher insects to have a long larval period interpolated between the egg and the adult. In the larval period, reserves are accumulated, and at the end of the period, after full size has been attained, the great change or metamorphosis is initiated completing itself in a quiescent pupa phase well suited for surviving the winter. But it is not easy to understand how the development which expressed certain hereditary qualities in building up a caterpillar should be able to recommence on a new plan and express other hereditary qualities which make up the butterfly.
the story of lampreys. In the Severn and other southern rivers, the sea lampreys come up in the spring, and the spawning is over by the end of June. It is later further north. These lampreys are big creatures, as long as one's arm and as thick as one's wrist, very lithe and slippery. If the word fish is to mean anything, it cannot be applied to lampreys, for they are jawless, limbless, and scaleless, and they have an unpaired nostril and peculiar gill pouches, very different from the gills of ordinary fishes. They are representatives of primitive backboned animals, far below the level of true fishes, for there is a big anatomical gulf between animals without jaws and those that have them, between cyclostomes and nathostomes, if we use zoological language. Like most archaic animals, lampreys are extraordinarily interesting. The parents usually choose a briskly flowing stretch of the river, and they clear a nesting site by removing the stones in their sectorial mouths. If a stone is too heavy for one, the pair will tackle it. The stones are piled in a sort of breakwater on the upside of the chosen spot, and in a dam on the downside, so that the eggs are less likely to be washed downstream. In the shelter of the stone nest, the eggs are laid, and the development is rapid. A rather interesting point, for the larval period is long drawn out. The young ones hatch out in about a fortnight, and in a month or so, when only half an inch long, they leave the nest and seek quietly flowing water. They wallow in the sand or mud, and feed on other water babies. They grow out into what country boys call niners, often confused with the young eels, with which, of course, they have nothing whatever to do. An interesting detail, significant in its adaptiveness, is that the skin of the young lamprey secretes a digestive juice, making short work of the bacteria which abound in rather stagnant water. The name niners, or nine-eyes, is rather difficult to explain, for the larvae are blind. There are eight gill openings, however, and there is the place where the eye will eventually emerge, so these make nine, the nine eyes of rustic natural history. After three or four years of rather monotonous youth, the niners begin to grow up. They undergo a remarkable structural change, putting off their juvenile characters, such as their horseshoe-shaped mouth, and putting on adult characters, such as clearly exposed eyes. The change usually takes place in the autumn. There are species of lamprey that remain in fresh water. But the large species we've been studying, Petromyzin marinus, spends a considerable part of its life in the sea. After two or three years, the number is uncertain, spent in the sea in active predatory life, gripping fishes and rasping holes in their skin with a very effective toothed piston, the big marine lampreys return to the rivers to make their stone nests and spawn. It is a remarkable fact that they die after spawning, as eels seem to do. We have found the strong muscular body floating spent in the shallows of the river. As in the case of the delicate mayflies, so with these big lusty lampreys, the giving rise to new lives means the end of the old. The Eel Fair It is in spring that the young eels, or elvers, come up to the rivers from the sea in countless crowds. They are about two and a half inches in length, and like a very stout knitting needle in girth. They hug the banks but move persistently upstream as long as the daylight lasts. When the sun goes down behind the hills, they snuggle under stones and lie quiet till dawn. Their persistent migration illustrates in part an instinctive impulse, which does not work except in the light, and in part a tropism, for the elvers automatically adjust their bodies so that the pressure of the stream plays equally on each side. The story of the eel has been referred to already in the article on The Haunts of Life. It must suffice to say that the elvers are already a year and a half old, that they spent their previous juvenile period as transparent knife-blade-like creatures, leptocephali, near the surface of the open sea, that they go upstream to quiet reaches and to ponds, 
and that the successful survivors return to the sea as big eels in five to eight years. The Return of the Birds One of the pleasantest changes in the spring is the return of the migratory birds which have been wintering in the south. Birds like Swallow and Swift, Cuckoo and Nightingale, see article Birds. In many cases the adult males arrive first, and sometimes, as in the case of warblers, they choose a territory before their mates appear on the scene. The immature youngsters are the last to come. There is often great punctuality in the arrival of these summer visitors, as the puffins on the cliffs well illustrate. And another striking feature is that a bird, such as swift or swallow, may return to its precise nesting place of the previous year. The silence of winter is soon broken. The country is full of singing birds. 2. The Biology of Summer Summer is the time of maximum output and income of energy, when the fires of life not only burn brightest, but begin to be banked up for another year. For it is characteristic of living creatures that they are able to accumulate energy acceleratively that they are able to store. Intense Activities of Summer The most important activity of summer is the quietest of all, the manufacture of sugar and starch and still more valuable materials in the green leaves. The result is the accumulation of a great wealth of food in a wheat field, for instance. Some of this goes to account of growth, e.g., in forming the buds for the next year. Some of it is stored in root, in stem, and seed. Some of the sugar is drafted into the flower to overflow as nectar and to fill the fruit with succulents, and no small part of it is immediately devoured by animals, passing into a fresh incarnation. Summer is distinctly a flowering time, as spring of leafing, and as the days grow warmer and brighter, the floral colors grow in intensity. There is more than a grain of truth in the old meteorologist's suggestion that the annual succession of colors and flowers corresponds on the whole to that of the rainbow. If industry means the transformation of matter and energy from one form to some other form, then green plants are very industrious, and the same is true of the bees which are visiting the flowers and transforming the nectar of the blossoms into the honey of the honeycomb. As is indicated in the article on botany, it is very interesting to inquire into the ways in which insects are attracted to the blossoms, whether by brightly colored flags that catch the eye, or by fragrance appealing to the sense of smell, or by a recollection of a previous feast of nectar. It is important to notice, as Aristotle observed 2,000 years ago, that a bee on every expedition does not pass from one kind of plant to another, but confines itself to a single kind, for instance, to violets, and does not change until it has first returned to the hive. There are indeed exceptions, but what Aristotle noted is generally true, and the habit makes it more certain that the fertilizing pollen will be scattered in an appropriate way, and not at random. Many biological notes are sounded, such as the value of the cross-fertilization made possible by the most important linkage in the world, see article on interrelations, and the neat adaptation of insect to flower and of flower to insect. They fit like hand and glove. Industries of Animals the twofold business of animal life is caring for self and caring for others, and both may involve great industry. That is to say, things are made or moved, captured and stored, or changed from one form to another. When we think of an anthill, a piece of honeycomb, a bird's nest, a badger's burrow, we must admit that animals are often very industrious. Consider the business of hunting. The otter hunts alone. The wolves in winter hunt in packs. The sparrowhawk hunts by day and the barn owl by night. Some big spiders pounce on their prey. Most make snares and webs. The grub of the tiger beetle makes a trap and the larval antlion a pitfall. The stoat pursues the rabbit with all its speed, 
but the cat stalks the mouse with a hardly perceptible approach. As to fishing, the pelicans work in companies. The heron fishes alone. The dipper walks about and even uses its wings underwater, and the osprey catches the trout in its talons. As to shepherding, several species of ants treat green flies or aphides as if they were cows, and even look after the young. As to farming, the agricultural ant of Texas weeds small circular patches, leaving only the needle grass, the seeds of which are much esteemed. Both true ants and white ants, see the article on the insect world, grow certain fungi from which they obtain an important part of their food. The main use of the leaves which the leaf-cutting ants collect seems to be to form, after they've been chewed, a medium on which the prized fungus will grow. When the queen leaf-cutter founds a new colony, she brings with her a minute pill of the fungus, which forms the starting point of a fresh growth. As to storing, we think of the squirrel's caches of nuts, the ant's granary, the hive bee's honey, the digger wasp's paralyzed caterpillars. Then there is the making of shelters and nests and burrows. A climax along one line is the great termitary exceeding a man's height, built of salivated earth and often with internal furnishings of chewed wood. A climax on another line is the hanging paper house of the wasp, with one story suspended from another and all surrounded by windproof and waterproof walls. There is no doubt as to animal industries. Birds' Nests Without trespassing on the article on birds, we may emphasize what is important biologically in connection with nest-making. It is in great part an instinctive activity, but intelligent adjustment to peculiar conditions and materials is often detected. The kind of nest is often very specific. Thus the black bird and the thrush, which are first cousins, build very different nests. There is an inclined plane from no nest at all, as in guillemots, to elaborate nests like those of weaver birds and the wren. The evolution of nests is to be linked up with the fact that it is always dangerous to lay eggs on the ground. That the development of embryo and nestling alike often demands a temperature which cannot be attained without the use of non-conducting material round about. That it is important that the parent bird be made comfortable during the long patience of brooding. That it makes the business of feeding the young easier. And that it is often essential that the eggs and nestlings should be hidden from hungry eyes, and the young bird sheltered from the glare of the sun, and from the danger of tumbling out. Finally, we find in the study of birds' nests many an eloquent reminder that in the struggle for existence, the evolution of parental care may pay just as well as the evolution of sharp beak and strong talons. Professor McGillivray counted 2,379 feathers in the beautiful nest of the long-tailed tit. Parental Care The parental care so marked in birds is widespread through the whole kingdom of animals. And it is, on the whole, most characteristic of summer. Let us select three or four pictures. We sit down among the heather, and as we peer into the jungle roundabout, we often see a mother spider moving swiftly and skillfully with a tiny silken bag on her breast. This is a cocoon containing eggs, and after a while, young spiders. The mother seems to clutch it beneath her body with the help of the bases of her legs, but it is sometimes bound to her by silken threads. She looks as if she thought a lot of it, though we do not suppose that she thinks as we count thinking, but she resists if you try to take it away. And if you pull it off and place it at a little distance, she seeks for it carefully, by scent it seems, for she is very short-sighted. It is her family that she is carrying about till the young ones come out and run hither and thither of themselves, just like miniatures of their mother. Other spiders make silken nests on the heather or in crevices among stones and bark. Others hide their beautiful cocoons, white, pink, or greenish, in shelters made of bramble leaves, bound together with silk. 
The water spider rears her family on a diving bell of silk on the floor of a pool. The trapdoor spider sinks a long shaft in the ground. In early summer, the male three-spined stickleback, conspicuous in red and green, makes a barrel-shaped nest in a shore pool or in a freshwater pond. Pieces of seaweed or freshwater plants are glued together with sticky threads from the kidneys, and a cavity is made in the middle. A female is induced to enter the nest, where she lays a few eggs. When she has gone, another and another does the same, for the stickleback is polygamous. Over the nest, the male then mounts guard, driving away other sticklebacks and much larger fishes. He is extremely pugnacious. When the young ones hatch out, the nest is partly picked to pieces, but the male still takes solicitous charge of the family. If a youngster strays, it is retrieved by the father fish and carried home in his mouth. Wasps play an important part of the economy of nature by keeping down the numbers of injurious insects. Many of them kill not only for themselves, but for their larvae. Among the digger wasps, some of which make tunnels and dry banks by the roadside, the mother places paralyzed caterpillars and the like beside her laid eggs, so that there is fresh meat for the grubs when these hatch out. By that time the mother wasps have died, for they never see the reward of their labors. It is probable that the habit was established when the tenure of the parent's life was longer. In some other predatory wasps, such as the African fury wasps, the mother brings freshly stung insects day by day to her offspring. There is sometimes only one, so that there is more of a personal touch here. In a third set of predatory wasps, the mother kills the insect right away, chews it into a mince, and gives this to her offspring, receiving in return a drop of overflowing juice from the grub's mouth, an elixir that seems greatly appreciated. The salient biological fact in summer is, we think, the extraordinary activity at various levels, vegetative, instinctive, and intelligent. The activity is swayed by the twin impulses of hunger and love. There is eager endeavor after individual well-being, and there is not less careful effort which secures the welfare of the young. The intensity of life sometimes goes too far, as the worker bee illustrates in its very short life and in the demonstrated fact that a certain number of its brain cells are always becoming overfatigued and going out of gear. Another illustration of the tendency to overdo things may be found in the summer sleep or estivation of some animals in warm countries. Thus the tenrec, centites, of Madagascar, an earthworm-eating insectivore, relapses in summer into a state hardly distinguishable from hibernation. We may notice in passing that there are many peculiar features in this type. Thus, some of its dorsal hairs have turned into spines, and as the animal cannot roll itself up like its distant relative the hedgehog, it dashes them with some force into the skin of an assailant. And again, it has been reckoned as the most prolific of mammals, for it is reported to have had 21 young ones in a litter. But this is by the way. The keynote of summer is activity. End of section 14.